This episode features seven-time world champion endurance athlete, author, and speaker, Rebecca Rush. Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, an adventure podcast presented by REI Co-op, the brand who helps get you outside through gear, classes, and adventures. We talk to experts who have taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have climbed the tallest peaks, started thriving businesses, and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy this show. This week is about carving your own trail map, and Rebecca Rush, who's been called the modern-day Wonder Woman and the Queen of Pain, has done just that. As a professional athlete for over three decades, the seven-time world champion has continually tested her own limits and shattered the glass ceiling in whatever sport she tackles. So whether it's endurance mountain bike racing where she regularly beats the guys, 24-hour or more adventure racing, or even breaking records like the one she has for a first female ascent, rock climbing El Capitan in Yosemite, and even riverboarding, which is basically boogie boarding down the Grand Canyon. Rebecca is also the first guest of Wild Ideas Worth Living to make a return appearance. Last year when we spoke, she just released a full-length feature film with Red Bull called Blood Road. It followed her very personal journey along the 1,800-kilometer Ho Chi Minh Trail, and we dove deep into the film. This year, Rebecca is about to celebrate 50, and she's had some time to reflect back on her life. So we get really deep into her philosophy on how she's not only created her own map in life, but how you can too. We also talk about what happens when we take risks, what it was like to be homeless and broke and then make it, and Rebecca's tactics on making choices and what to do next, also on training her body, and most importantly, training her mind. Enjoy. All right, Rebecca Rush, welcome back to Wild Ideas Worth Living, your first guest to return. I'm so excited to chat with you again. You know, last year was a huge year with the movie Blood Road. Maybe you could just catch us up really quickly about, you know, last year's big year with the movie coming out. And, you know, I already told the audience a little bit about all of your accomplishments, but maybe you could just talk quickly about kind of the movie and what happened last year. Oh, yeah. Last year, actually, this journey of Blood Road started before last year when I went to I went to Red Bull with the idea to do the biggest ride of my life. And I needed help um, because of logistics and the scope of the project were so massive. And what I wanted to do was ride the entire length of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, 1,200 miles through Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia with for two goals. One, to be the first person ever to do it, my adventurous endurance athlete, you know, soul really wanted to do something like this. But the second bigger purpose to do the ride was to go find the place where my father's plane was shot down in the Vietnam War. And I went to Red Bull and ask for help. I didn't go to ask, let's make a movie. I really just wanted to do this ride personally. And three years later, what has come of it has been a feature length documentary that's won film festival awards and, you know, been seen around the world, like you said. And it's been, been a really important journey for me because it really did. It was the culmination of everything I've done in my career, all the experience, everything I've learned in 25 years as an athlete really was put to the test in this ride. And what the second part of it that's been so amazing is by sharing the story with the Red Bull Media House film, it's really given me a platform to help other people. And it's a very healing film for a lot of people, whether you're in the military or have a service member 
family member, or you just love to ride bikes, or you're just, you know, lost someone in your life. And it's been, I really do feel like it sounds quite deep, but it is that my father, it's his way of teaching and guiding me at this point in my career. I'm almost 50 and I'm learning from my dad now. And what has been so great about this journey of Blood Road and making a documentary and sharing it um, is that the whole experience really helped me evolve as an athlete. I've been an athlete a long time, but it really forced me to sit down and ask, who am I? What do I stand for? What's next? How do I follow up on something like this? And what's important to me? And I have to thank Red Bull and my dad for, for really helping me develop my personal guidelines. You know, I've lived out of my car. I've been traveling around the world, kind of doing what looks like a very circuitous, unplanned career path. But I've been able to really articulate and identify now that there has been a path and there has been a plan. And it's super exciting for me to now feel like I have purpose for my riding and what I'm doing. So that was a very long answer. But Blood Road has been so exciting for me personally, but also for my career, my purpose and who I'm going to be when I grow up. Yeah. So let's talk about that. You sent me a letter you wrote to your 15-year-old self. And this is a question I ask pretty much every guest on the show at the end, but I think we should start here. You know, you wrote this letter to 15-year-old Becky, your nickname at the time, Rebecca, obviously. Can you talk to me about this letter and sort of the advice you'd give her? I mean, in one point in the letter, you said, the good news is you won't ever have to wear pantyhose for your job. The bad news, you're going to be homeless, broke, scared, and bruised. And I have been that, and I'm glad that I've been that. And that sort of, you know, Red Bull, again, I have to give them props. They forced me to write this letter, and it was really cool to look back and reflect. And, you know, when we're young, I mean, we're so insecure. And, you know, we're deciding what to wear. You know, I think we've talked about a little bit, you know, there's body image issues when you're 15, and what are you gonna, and you're deciding where you're going to go to college and what you're going to do. And um, it was a really hard time for me. My sister has always known what she's wanted to do in her whole life. And I've never known. And I was headed down a career path in business and marketing. And yeah, I did have to wear pantyhose for some of my first jobs. And it didn't fit. It didn't work. And so that the advice to, yeah, to my 15-year-old self and even to my 49-year-old self is taking the path less traveled or something that seems unpredictable or the outcome is unknown, that's what works for me. And, and I have been able to kind of identify that, that if I do take risk and, and take the path less traveled, there is reward at the end of it, even if it's not really obvious in the beginning. And the other part of that, you know, advice to myself, and I still do it today is that, is that, you know, you're doing a good job. You're okay. You know, I think we're all our own worst critics and in a time of social media and you're seeing everybody's, you know, fabulous things that are happening. It's really easy to get down on yourself and think you could be doing better. And, and often good enough is, is really fabulous. Mm, I love that. That's something that I struggle with. I'm really hard on myself. So being good enough is is something that's important to tell yourself, you know, there's so few athletes, Rebecca, that make it professionally for 25 years. I mean, you're, you're almost 50. That's so cool. So let's just talk <laughs> a little bit. I want you to dive a little deeper into how you did it and how you're still doing it, especially in 
an arena that's you know untraditional adventure sports if you were just a baseball player or a soccer player you know there's a more linear path but you're an adventure athlete which is nebulous it is nebulous which is a blessing and a curse there were definitely times in my athletic career where it would have been nice to just know okay this is your season these are the races you're going to these world cup races whatever whatever and when the season's over, the season's over. When the career's over, the career's over. That would have been very nice. Like a ski racer, like Lindsey Vaughn. It's very clear the races she needs to go to. But I was left to, you know, create my own path. Well, which races do I want to go to? Which adventures do I want to tackle? And while that's really super challenging, I'm grateful because it did push me to decide and it pushed me to develop you know, my goals and develop who I am, which is always changing. So it gave me freedom and longevity, but it's also much harder not to have a roadmap, to not have a trail map of a season that unfolds very linear, you know, in a linear fashion, like you said. Um, So it's a blessing and a curse. It's definitely not been easy. So what did you do? Like, how do you decide what projects and events to pursue? And I want to back up because you said earlier on, you know, one of the first 24-hour mountain bike races you ever did, you beat everyone, the guys and the girls. That's true. And that was a, that was a, that was a really good decision to enter that race because I'm sure that, that took your career to another level. So, like, how do you decide what to do? There, I talked a little about these sort of rules for myself that I've been able to develop and I can look back in my career and, and everything that I've decided to do from, you know, leaving my amazing job, running rock climbing gyms in California to live in my car so I could go adventure racing. They all revolved around risk and risk is a word that people throw around. That's like, oh yeah, take risks. And, you know, you know, my mantra is risk equals reward, but it's deeper than that because I am not the kind of person who, you know, goes bungee jumping or leaps before you look. And there, there is a story there too. I tried to go bungee jumping once with my friends in New Zealand and I couldn't do it. I couldn't step off the platform. Really? And there is like grandmothers, there's all these people. And yeah, everyone's like, really? You couldn't go bungee jumping? I'm surprised somebody didn't push you. I couldn't do it in my core. And this goes back to all the risks that I take. Um, it's calculated. Mm. So for example, when I, I got invited to swim the Grand Canyon on boogie boards with a couple of the best whitewater women in the world for a month in winter and uh, unsupported. And I didn't really have whitewater experience. And I said yes to that because it was a, an amazing adventure that, you know, made the hair on my neck stand up, but I also had bailout plans. I knew where I could hike out at Phantom Ranch. If it didn't work, I knew exactly a way like to have a plan B and a plan C. And that's something really important that's worked for me, you know, going back to living out of my car. Um, so I could go adventure racing. I didn't have any debt. I didn't owe any money staying with friends. I had a plan B and C and I knew I could get another job if I had to get another job. So how old were you? Let's go back. How old were you when you quit yeah. this rock climbing job? And, and you were, so you were in charge of marketing for a bunch of gyms in California. I was actually a partial owner of wow. the gym. So I um, helped open some of the first climbing gyms in the country, which was really exciting. And I thought, this is it. 
I'm using my marketing and business degree. I'm using my sports interests and I'm opening up these businesses. And it was, it was a dream job and I was part owner. So, you know, and I left it. How old were you? (laughs) Which seems really crazy. I was, what was I? It was in the, oh gosh, I was late twenties, you know, mid late twenties. And when was this? Like what years? This was in the nineties. And I was rock climbing a bunch and doing a bunch of cool things and was just getting invited to do these ultra endurance races that were called eco challenge adventure racing. And those were week, week long multi-day races that involved, you know, hiking, biking, climbing, kayaking, navigation. And the way the teams were set up, they had to have a female. These were the rules. So you had to have at least one mandatory female. (laughs) And so all these teams, what happened is these teams were coming into my rock climbing gym saying, oh, we need to learn how to repel. I'm like, well, nobody learns how to repel. You, you climb up, you know, you don't need to learn to come down. But anyway, so I taught them, I took their money and started talking about their sport. And then I started getting asked because there's, there were so few women who were climbing and paddling and doing other things. I got asked to be on an adventure racing team. I was like, I don't know what that is. Well, okay, I'll go do it. And I have a habit of saying yes instead of no when some crazy idea gets thrown at me. And the reason they asked me, I couldn't, I didn't know how to ride a bike. I had to learn that, but I could do like three out of the seven sports. And so they figured that was good enough because I was female. I met that requirement. And that really launched my adventure racing career for 10 years, which was my ticket to see the world, you know, to go to, you know, fill up two passports and travel. And that's how I saw it. I got invited on this adventure race to Australia. I was like, well, if I'm going to do all this stuff, I'm going to travel all around. I need to not, not have any expenses, which meant not living anywhere. So that was why I really felt like these travel opportunities weren't going to come again. And so that's why I did leave my really amazing job So yeah, I decided to live in my car and the backup plan was, well, I can always, you know, come back or get another job. That move really launched my entire professional athlete career of of taking the risk of being like, yeah, I really want to travel. I really want to explore. And your first question was, how have I done it for so long? And really it's curiosity. It's always like, just even as a little kid riding my bike, it's like, what's around the next corner from my block? you know, or what's, you know, what's two streets over. And I'm still that way. What is Kyrgyzstan like? What is New Zealand like? And what is Idaho like? And that curiosity and, you know, need to explore and kind of wide-eyed little child, you know, childlike wonderment that still exists in me. And I'm sure that's why I'm still an athlete is there are still things I want to see. So this is super interesting because for those of you listening, Eco Challenge was started by Mark Burnett before he produced Survivor. So this was the late 1990s or super early 2000. I was in college and when I graduated, I was actually up for a job writing about the Eco Challenge series and I really wanted that gig. I ended up going to the Warp Tour and writing on the Warp Tour instead, but man, that was the coolest adventure race series ever. Well, and people don't realize there's no sleep. There's no, you know, rule. There's, there's rules, but you're, you're basically going nonstop for seven days, you know, canyoneering, riding, biking, everything, riding horses, riding camels as a team of four. And you really are on 
sort of a controlled expedition. And for me, you know, obviously it's super hard. You're sleeping like two hours a night for a week. And it really was my education in, in endurance sports and expeditions, but also in, you know, um, personal interaction and, and the skills, you know, basically teamwork skills of dealing and being with people who are cold and tired and hungry and maybe pissed off and scared. So it really was a master's education in, in human dynamics and, and how to, how to get people to perform at their best, but support each other as well, because you had to stay together. You couldn't leave anyone. Do you have it? I'm so glad I did it. Yeah. Do you have any stories from Eco Challenge Days that you could share that really had an impact on you? One of the biggest ones, yeah, was in the Raid Galois, which was not an Eco Challenge, but it's the the original race that the Eco Challenge was based off, a French, a French version of it. And it was at the the raid was the world championships. So we were one of my first raids was in Tibet and Nepal. And we went and it was my first race invited on a really big team. You know, I had, I was kind of like a newbie coming up, but again, because I was female, I was a hot commodity. And so I got invited on a really reputable team and it started, the race started, I think started at 13,000 feet um, and went up from there. And we went up to 18,000 feet in the first day. So obviously you can imagine the the going fast, and going up to high altitude is really not a recipe for success. And people are getting sick left and right. Pulmonary edema, getting rescued from the race. Everybody's getting pulled out. Um, and this is only in the first 24 hours. And our team was right up near the front of the pack. We're doing great. And I was getting really, really sick. And so was someone else on our team. It was probably the the deepest suffering I've ever had. I mean, I was essentially crawling on my knees, coughing up blood, And we got to the high point where there was a checkpoint and there was a medical station where, um, you know, we'd gone through a a really long night of suffering and walking and coughing and crying. And, you know, I don't know what to do. You know, I think I'm really, and I, I thought I was really damaging my body and just like, this is more than just pain and suffering. I think I'm really hurting myself, but there was so much pressure to keep up with these guys. And, you know, we're the top American team. There'd never been an American team doing well in the raid. And when we got to the top of this aid station, the medics wanted to pull me and my teammate Isaac out from the race. You know, they looked us up and down and we're like, nope, you're out. And we, they, they made us stay there a few hours and monitored us and took our blood oxygen levels, all these kind of things. And eventually, you know, by coercing our, our team captain um, was able to convince the race directors and the medics to let us go on. And part of me just wanted to stay there and curl up and, you know, not go on a big part of me. But the the thing was the high point, 18,000 feet is where the medical camp was. So me, who's just wanting to survive at this point, I don't care about the race is sitting there going, well, if I have to stay at 18,000 feet and wait for medical help, I'm going to be here longer. And the course immediately was going to, descend and head down way down like a 7,000 foot descent and so I was just like let us go we'll be down faster and what was happening along that walk to get down after they let us go was you know 
three out of my four male teammates were trying to motivate me by sort of being, you know, kind of hard, like, come on, you can do it. And they were walking ahead, quite far ahead. We all know that feeling when you're the one in the back and the people in front of you are just out of reach and you're like, oh, oh, and like, you're never going to catch them. It's kind of like this treadmill of of things that are still going away from you. And one of my teammates, Patrick Harper, he stayed back and walked with me really slowly. And I was literally taking one step at a time. And at one point I was on my knees crying, just, I don't, I can't do it. I can't do it. And he said to me, he gave me a hug and he said, look, if you need to stop, if you need to quit, I'll go with you. And that was all I needed to hear. I got up and I started walking and we finished the race and we finished seventh overall, which we had dropped to about 50th place, you know, from second. And we, we scratched our way back. And the big lesson for me in that was that he just said, it's okay if you fail. Basically, in my definition of quitting is failing. And he just said, it's okay, I'm here with you. And that kind of human support actually pushed me further. It was the result, you know, what the other guys were trying to do, which was to get me to go. All they needed to do was say, it's okay to stop if you have to. And that's what Patrick said. And we've been lifelong friends and he's the reason I live in Idaho, but it was also, also a lesson in as athletes or hardcore people, we push, 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 push all the time. And sometimes it's okay to stop and somebody to say, it's okay, you can stop. And that was so powerful for me. And it had the effect of actually getting me to go. You mentioned also failing with sponsorships. I mean, getting paid <laughs> to be an athlete, especially in untraditional sports, like you compete in an adventure. It's so rare to have, I mean, I don't really know another female in adventure sports that has a career that spans as long as yours. You know, aside, I know you're also a part-time firefighter. Maybe you can briefly talk about that, but how have you navigated attracting and keeping sponsors and deciding who you want to partner with and, and really how to get paid doing what you love? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's the hardest part of my job. I've had people be like, oh, you're so lucky. You just go ride your bike or you go, you know, hiking in the mountains for your living. I'm like, well, that's the part that, you know, the icing on the cake, what is, is behind the scenes. And any job is like this is, you know, basically being a salesperson 24 seven. And you could have, you could, and this has happened to me, you could win world championships. You could, you could do everything and more that a sponsor is asked for the year and get fired at the end of the year because marketing budgets are, you know, based on sales. And even if you've performed to the absolute top level, you can still get fired. And there's very few jobs like that where you could perform really well and get shown the door. And so what it requires is, is a hustle, like amazing amounts of hustle and creativity and looking for places where, you know, a value that a sponsor may not have thought of. And I've never looked at a sponsor as just a paycheck. It's always, okay, I'm lucky that they're partnering with me. They see something in me. I've really got to make sure I give back. And it's not just race results. I think that's the biggest part of my career is that I've really tried to offer other things because I'm always thinking, again, me, I need a backup plan. What if I get injured? What if I can't race for a year? What if I don't win this race? And so that's why I launched things. Part of the reason I launched things like 
the SRAM Gold Rush Tour, which was the five years of free women's events that I put on. I do a lot of writing. I do speaking. I wrote a book. Um, you know, I have my, um, my event, Private Idaho. So it really is about just diversification. And what can you give back that isn't just a podium picture and a podium win? And I think women are really good at at being that kind of diversified athlete. And partially it's because paychecks have traditionally been less for women. And so they had to hustle. They had to have a second job. They had to, you know, be a teacher or something else um, to make it work. And again, it's a challenge that it's kind of, it's kind of lame that it's there that women have to do this extra hustle. But I'm also, again, that silver lining. I'm really glad I was pushed to have to do that because now at this point in my career, I have a much more well-rounded business where I do have some events that I put on and I do have other things other than racing and, and doing expeditions. And while that part of my career is certainly not over, I have other things, other pieces of the pie. And so I think that diversification is a really big deal. And also you asked a question about who do I decide to work with? Um, I had a really big lesson from this a few years ago, right before I was about to leave to ride the Ho Chi Minh Trail, I elected to change bike sponsors. And there, that had been a long-term, more than 10-year career with my current bike sponsor. And it wasn't working anymore. I was like a square peg in a round hole. And what they wanted was, you know, Olympians and World Cup and a very traditional type of cyclist. And I'm not that. And I really decided it wasn't a fit anymore. And it was the the scariest, scariest move I've made in a long time in my career of walking away from, from that sponsorship relationship and then finding a new one with a much smaller company, but a company that really fit me. And that's Niner Bicycles that really fit who I was. And like, we love you for who you are. We love what you're doing. Just keep doing it. We can't believe you want to, you know, we would love to work with you. And that was a really great lesson. And, you know, when it's not right, knowing, you know, to break off the relationship and do something that feels right for you. And, and any partner that I work with, it has to be a fit like that because I'm not, I'm not at a level where I'm just going to put a logo on my Jersey for something that I don't use or I don't believe in. Um, it's, it's, you know, the gear is too important to me and the relationships are really important to me because I am talking to these people. They are friends and we are partners. We're marketing partners. But that was really hard to leave a big company and go to a smaller one. But it's been one of the best decisions of my life, mm-hmm. but really, and a good lesson of, hey, if it's not fitting, if it's not working, then that's okay. You know, it's no shame on me or the company I was working with. It just wasn't working anymore. Yeah. And I know you personally and you pitch like a mofo (laughs) and it's awesome. (laughs) And now you have some, it's hard, but you have to. (laughs) Yeah. And you have C to summit, which they make such good sleeping bags and all sorts of camping (laughs) gear. And you've got some great goo. You've got some really great sponsors. I work with best people ever. Like they're the products I would use if I was buying them. And that's a really great way, you know, to be because it makes it, it makes my job easy. If I'm going to talk about this stuff and I'm, I'm already in love with it, it makes it easy. And then it's real. Totally. I hope you're enjoying this episode. We're going to take a break to hear from our sponsor. When we come back, we're going to talk about how Rebecca stays fit and at the top of her game at 50. Plus we'll talk about the technology Red Bull provides for helping her increase human performance 
some of the stuff she's done and how you can increase your own performance. This podcast was brought to you by Altessa, a series of outdoor events designed for women who long for a life of discovery. Whether it's committing to a three-day weekend retreat on a mountaintop or an energetic one-day outdoor festival featuring female artists, musicians, and speakers, Altessa has your outdoor aspirations covered. I'll be at some Altessa events this summer, and I'm super stoked to be part of this great event series. There's also some amazing brands involved who make this event possible. So thank you to partners like Subaru of America, Garmin, Osprey, Sea to Summit, Smartwool, The North Face, Hydro Flask, Probar, Solomon, Maui Gym, Black Diamond, Yakima, Olakai, Roxy, Igloo, and Leatherman. You can learn more about the REI Altessa events at altessa.com. That's O U T E. SSA.com. You know, one of the things you mentioned earlier, I mean, there's also a few athletes that, that are so fit at 50, you know, I'm thinking, and that have a career like you. So I'm thinking like, you know, Kelly Slater is not 50, but like you are about to turn 50 this year and keeping your body fit and being a pro athlete at 50, that's, that's huge. So I'm, when do you turn 50, Rebecca? <laughs> in August. And you're, you're, I think, publicly the first person to, uh, I mean, I'm not hiding it in any way, but this is, yeah, this is the first time I've sort of talked about it openly um, in public. So, I mean, yeah, it's I'm so cool. <laughs> I, I mean, hell, I tell people I'm 50 just so that they think I like look really good for my age, but, you know, I'm still, still in my 30s, but I thought you were my age. So this is amazing. So let's talk about how, how you do it, you know, what, tell me a little bit about your training recovery and, and how you've managed to stay, you know, so fresh and, and keep going. Fresh. Awesome. Well, at first I want to say, you know, we are who we are. And I think owning up, this is one thing I learned in writing my book, Fresh to Glory, is I was really honest. I talked about eating disorder. I talked about fear. I talked about being insecure. And there was so much, I got so much great feedback mm. from people who were like, wow, thank you for being honest. And thank you for not saying just, oh, I'm so rad all the time. And so I think it's, it was a big lesson for me is to own who we are and to be honest of, yeah, I'm afraid about this, but here's what I'm going to do about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, holy crap, I'm turning 50. And there is, you know, there is a stigma as an athlete there. You think, wow, can, what can someone do at 50? But and so I'm owning it, but I think what's really cool is our definitions of what age is are changing so much mm -hmm. because people are learning to rest and recover and performance technology is amazing. And that's why you are, it's no longer weird to see, it would be weird to see an athlete in their late thirties, you know, competing in high level mountain biking or skiing or anything else. And now it's kind of like, oh yeah, they're in their thirties. It's, it's much more commonplace. And I think it's expanding up, up the ladder, um, in, into fifties and who knows where else. So it's kind of exciting to see that changing. And it's one of those things of like, if I knew in my twenties, what I know now, and that's part of how I keep fed and keep going is knowledge and knowledge really is power. I, I have the ability. Um, I have the, really the benefit have access to the Red Bull performance team. So there's a whole division in Red Bull North America um, that is just all about 
you know, improving human performance and everything from diet, brain training, you know, float tanks, you know, they're basically exploring all the different avenues. And as an athlete, I have access to that stuff. And I've done some really cool brain training work with them and am realizing that that really the holy grail and the power in our performance is on top of our shoulders. And there is so much more that can be done to develop the mind. And it's not a new technology. I mean, meditation, visualization are ancient, but we're just now being able to measure and quantify that and see the effects. Mm. And so a big part of what I do is, is meditating and learning to rest and, and being smarter about my training. I mean, I really, when I was in the eco challenge years, it was just like volume, 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 do you as much as you possibly can. And now it's, it's less is more. And I really, I'm training better. I'm training less, um, but smarter training better instead of harder. If that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> can we dive a little bit more into this brain training? Cause I've done biofeedback, mm-hmm. which someone said, Hey, this is exactly the machine the Red Bull team uses, but I, I don't know if that's mm-hmm. the same, you know, what, what sort of like, how do you meditate? You know, what other brain training you do? How many minutes do you do it for every morning? Well, what was cool to me, I kind of, you know, blood road again was another, I kind of came back, you know, thinking about meditation and realizing there and getting a little bit more involved. And I use the app called Headspace, which I mm. think a lot of people use. And I really like that because it, you know, you can do 10 minutes or 15 minutes and it's like, okay, who doesn't have 10 minutes to sit down and just, you know, relax. And, you know, something that I took from Blood Road is the creative director, Nicholas Shrunk, he required me to journal every day on the trail, on the Ho Chi Minh Trail as part of the filmmaking process and voice record every day. And I've carried that, I don't do it every day, but I've carried that with me. And it's been, that's kind of morphed into the meditation of really reflection, writing down, you know, I lie in bed and, you know, think about what was the best part of my day. And I do that every night. I ask my husband, (laughs) what was the best part of your day? One Mm -hmm. to celebrate and, you know, enjoy, you know, that we're living life. And then when I wake up in the morning, I lie there for a minute. I look out at the beautiful, we have this great, you know, mountain scene outside our window. And I, I was like, what's, what's my intention? What do I want to get done today? And I, you know, one or two things. And I don't always do it, you know, and sometimes at the end of the day when I'm like, what was the best part of my day? It was a really hard day. Sometimes I really struggle. And it's often just walking the dog was the best part of my day because the rest of the day sucked. But I think of one thing. And so I know we're talking about meditation, but I think even conscious meditation like that or conscious, you know, gratitude or appreciation. And, and what I came to really realize that's really kind of exciting for me is that I've been meditating all my life on, on the bike, on paddling, hiking, this ultra endurance sports for me, it's the same feeling. I, I found that when I was sitting doing non-moving meditation, I would fall into that kind of trance where you lose track of time and you're like, has it really only been 10 minutes? Wow, that's really weird. And you just kind of, you find your flow. And I've been doing that on the bike for years and I just didn't know it. And I think that's part of why I need to go, I need to go do those things because for my mental health and wellness, that is my kind of moving meditation. And the first 20 minutes of every ride, I'm like, oh, I'm sore, I'm slow, I'm you know, I'm out of shape, whatever. And then suddenly something happens in the body 
with the flow and the Red Bull performance team could tell me exactly what's happening. Um, but your mind and your body let go and all of a sudden you are just riding your bike and you don't know what time it is and you aren't thinking about your phone anymore. And I really do feel like if everybody did some moving meditation and some still meditation in their lives every day that, you know, we'd all be much happier universe. And I know for me personally, it's a big lesson and it's part of what I, what I need to do every day. And it's why I'll never retire when people say, Oh, when are you going to retire from bike? Never, because it's actually part of me. It's part of what I need to be happy and healthy. I love everything you just recommended about mind trading. And I think it's so important I want to really briefly revisit body training because 50 and yeah. body issues, you talked about having an eating disorder briefly, but this year, I mean, you even, I hope I can say this, but you got asked to pose for ESPN's body issue, which is like a huge, <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. And I know it didn't totally work out because of timing, but I want to talk to you about body positivity and sort of the tactics you've used to sort of treat your body well. This is a really big subject. You know, it's, I, I'll just be totally transparent here. It's already in my book. Um, I was bulimic in high school. And part of that reason was that I, well, the main reason I had a really poor body image. And I joined the cross-country running team. This is no lie. I got involved in sports because my next-door neighbor, who was very thin and lean, she was my, a couple years older, my sister's best friend, and, you know, I was talking to her about it one day and she said, she said, you know, I was talking to her about, oh, I'm a, a you know, I don't want to get fat. And she said, oh, you should just join the cross country team. You'll never get fat and you get a free sweatsuit. <laughs> no lie. I'm laughing only because that's like, so what 15 year old girls said back then. I Totally. I'm like, okay, free sweatsuit. And it was like the cool cotton kind, like mm -hmm. the matchy with the little hoodie. And so I'm like, those sweatsuits are cool. And yeah. I'll never get fat. That sounds great. Sign me up. So I signed up for the cross country running team. Honestly, I had no sports experience, no athletes in my family. Um, I just was like a little, you know, dirty kid who'd like love to go camping and play in the backyard. Um, but so that was my first formal sports experience. And my reason for getting involved was because of poor body image. And I am so grateful that I found that. And I struggled with eating disorder through college um, and it really wasn't until, you know, I got, I left the cross country running team in college actually, because, um, the, the male athlete coach would in the, every Monday we'd have to write a food diary and he'd sit down with it Monday morning with a, a yellow highlighter oh, and he'd be like, why'd you eat this? Why'd you eat this? You had three pieces of pizza. Why did you have three pieces? Well, I was hungry. Oh. Well, you shouldn't. And he'd take the highlighter. And I just sit there and think, and I had been kind of coming out, you know, working through the bulimia. And then that just was like, you know, and he even said to the team, basically, you guys will never win. You'll never be competitive because you're all too fat. And he actually said those words. You could never oh, say that now as a, as, a, as a college coach. Um, but it had a really big impact on me. And so in college, I went and worked at a health club, you know, and I was an aerobics instructor. <laughs> <laughs> which is actually really crazy. But that's where I met a bunch of people who, um, you know, were older than me, but they started to, you know, give me positive feedback instead of negative. 
And, you know, I found a new little core group of people that were in their thirties, but they were all gym rats and they were all working out. And I started to discover, you know, my muscles and what I could do with my body. And really the way that I've, the only way I've dealt with body image, and I'd be lying if I said, you know, I was completely over, like not looking at myself in the mirror going, oh, you know, is my butt big or are my legs ripped right now? And uh, as an athlete, you go through phases where, and you have to, um, where you're super fit and then you've got to, you know, recover and take the off season and put on a few pounds. And that's a natural progression, but it's not easy. You know, you always want to stay that super ripped lean look. And, you know, when I come back from a big long expedition or something, I'm really thin because you've, you're basically starving yourself while you're out doing those things, but that's not maintainable. And honestly, the only way that I look at those things now is to, is to look at my body as a tool and what it can do. And, I think our media is, is really changing and showing athletic women, which is really exciting. It's a lot easier now to look in a magazine and see people that look like you. And I used to, no, no joke, I used to like wear long sleeves and hide my arms because they were too muscular. And anytime I would go in to like an interview or a speaking engagement or something, people would be like, I don't look at my arms like, whoa you know, what's up with her. But now it's, it's celebrated. And, yeah. Now it's like Michelle and, Obama arms and that's cool. And that exactly, you know, we never used to talk about, Oh, her arms are strong and ripped in the eighties. You know, when I was, you, you didn't nineties, thousands, you didn't talk about that. Mm-hmm. Or you were like, God, what does that girl do? She looks kind of scary. She looks like a man was, would, was some comments that we get your arms look like a man. <laughs> But we're we're different now, which is exciting. We're really celebrating, you know, an athletic physique and, you know, getting asked to do something like, you know, an ESPN shoot because of the way that my body looks. That's, you know, that feels amazing. That's great. That's fantastic. And I don't know if I've answered your question really well, but I, I do know the one thing that, and again, I'll go back to mental health and wellness. The thing that I feel the best about my body is when I'm fit and I'm in shape and it's working for me and I'm using it well. Um, And really the only things that I notice with, you know, being older athlete is I need to stretch more. Okay. Everybody should stretch more. I need to stretch more and I need to take rest days. And, and those are things that are, you know, everybody should do that. I just feel it a little more when I don't, when I don't stretch, I'm like, Oh, I feel tighter than, than I should. Whereas in my twenties, you know, you could go climb a big wall, never stretch, you know, jump in the car, go party, you know, with your friends and recover, you know, like that the next morning, you're fine. Well, I think you said something that that was really important. And you said, you know, rather than what your body looks like, what can your body do? And to be grateful for, you know, the tools your body gives you, because I struggle with it. I mean, I'm a runner and I surf and when I'm not running and surfing, like, a lot, then, you know, my body changes and it's, it's hard. And we're always in a bikini in Southern California and yeah, I struggle with it. But when I can step back and just be grateful that my body, you know, can do podcasts and can walk out the door and can even run a mile or whatever it can do just, just to be grateful. I I think you said that. And that that's really huge. 
I think there's a big eye opener. I mean, I had had a little knee injury recently and it, it sidelined me for a minute and you're exactly right. When something is taken away from you, even like walking out the door and walking my dogs, you know, that if that's taken away, you suddenly really value it. And our body is an amazing tool to help us move through this world. And I wouldn't have seen, I wouldn't have seen the world without my body and being able to explore on my feet and on a bike. So it's pretty important to appreciate it and love it and say thank you to it. I actually thought of something to go back to when we were talking about the brain training. Yeah. And one of the biggest things I learned in the Red Bull brain training performance with a performance team is there are all these, you know, pieces of machinery and biofeedback and all this stuff that you can do. But honestly, you don't need those things. If you understand the power of your brain, and that was the biggest takeaway I did from some of this testing we did with them. We did some really cool stuff where we had neuroscientists who were giving us um, brain stimulation. And the goal of the camp was to see if the mind or the body quits first. And so some of us were getting stimulation on the central, you know, central governor area. Some of us weren't. And we're doing these repeat, repeat things over and over again. And we never knew when we were getting stimulated or when we were not. But the end of the seven-day camp, the, the last 4K time trial we did on the velodrome, we had to race a light that was our fastest time for the whole entire week. So it was LED light racing around the track and we're on the track alone racing the light. And I finished a tiny bit behind my light. Like I was ahead of it for a while, then I fell behind and then I got bummed on myself. I'm not beating the light. And then I finished a little bit behind the light and I was really upset with myself. And my coach Dean was there and uh, he's like, well, what's wrong? I'm like, well, I didn't beat the light. And he's like, okay. And you know, it's a, it's a, it's, probably predictable, but they're like, the light was faster than you've ever gone. And so you actually had your fastest time mm. at, on the last day. And, and they had, they had lied to us and said the light was our, our own time, but it really was faster than we had gone. And so it, it really, what I came home from that is how big of an asset or enemy our brain is. And, and imagine if in the middle of that time trial, I hadn't gotten down on myself for a little bit, my brain was like, Oh, you're behind the light. You suck you're going slowly. Why can't you go faster? Imagine if I hadn't lost that focus. And even with that, I was the fastest at the last day of the camp where I was the most tired. And so there can be all these tools and all this stuff that you can get, but really just understanding the power of that can be the game changer. And I do stuff, uh, if I'm scared on a mountain bike, I will say out loud, you know, you can do this or go Rebecca instead of no, Oh, I can't do it. I'll actually shout out loud. Even if I don't believe it, you know, because that does change, change the dialogue in your head. And one technique that I use a lot is I think about the words that I say to myself, would I say if I, I catch myself with sort of a negative loop in my head and I, I changed the name and put in one of my best friend's names. Would I say those words to a friend or even a stranger? Would I say, Shelby, why are you even mountain biking? You should get another job. You suck. You can't do this. Would I say that? If I wouldn't say that to you, why would I say it to myself? And I think that that's a, one of my biggest brain training that cheap, easy, doesn't cost anything, um, is to change that dialogue and turn it around and, and stop talking to yourself with the negative way because you change that dialogue and you say yes instead of no. And all of a sudden you're riding through that technical line and you're, mm. you're doing something because you believe. 
I love, I love that advice. That's so important. Um, you know, treating yourself like you would your best friend is so important. All right. So Rebecca, if you could throw a party today, any party, <laughs> who's coming? Where are we? What kind of food are we eating? Who's playing? <laughs> well, this is really cool. I love this question because I already throw this party every year, <laughs> awesome. which is awesome. Um, so Rebecca's Private Idaho is the signature bike race that I put on. And it's a bike event, a bike race, bike event, whatever you want to call it. And I launched Rebecca's Private Idaho for exactly this reason is people, I would travel and people like, Idaho, I, Iowa, Ohio, <laughs> like, what, 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 potato? I'm like, oh my gosh, no, you just need to come. And so I decided to launch this bike event basically to throw a big party on two wheels and to show people how spectacular my hometown is and to bring everybody here and have a party. And so I do that. We're going into year number six. And really that was my motivation is to throw a big bike party every year in my hometown and bring all my friends. Um, and that's what happens. We'll have a thousand people this year. And, and really it's, it's called Rebecca's private Idaho because we go wait, we, start and finish in town. There is a big party, but we go way out into, you know, remote Idaho where there's no cell phones, there's no houses. You'll see more animals than people. And it's, it's really special. And when we come back to town, so everybody goes out, they ride hundred miles or 50 miles, you know, they have this party on two wheels. And then we come back and celebrate with live music and, you know, food and food trucks and Patron and Red Bull. And Yum. we have a really good time. And so, honestly, it is kind of my dream party that happens every year on Labor Day weekend. So you can come. Um, everyone's invited. And and it really is because I love being at home. I love where I live. Um, and it really is a celebration of this place and outdoors and moving and, and riding and and it's for all levels, you know, every kind of person, any kind of bike. So, yeah, we already have the best party of my life here every year. It sounds so fun. I mean, you just said Patron and outdoors. Yeah. That's all I need. Of course. <laughs> you know gear probably better than anybody I know. So just gear that you love today when you travel, just any awesome pieces of equipment that you might be able to get at a gear store like REI that you recommend everybody go out and get. Oh man. I mean, there's so much what, and I have some, I've, I, I've gotten into when I pack for an expedition, I lay all my gear out on the floor and I really go through, you know, essential and especially like bike packing or expeditions, you're carrying all your gear on your back. And so it's really important one that it's functional, that it works and then it's lightweight. And you mentioned see the summit. I use a lot of their gear. Um, I really feel like the one piece of gear that everybody needs is a bicycle and mm -hmm. I ride a Niner bicycle, you know, it doesn't matter. Just get a bike because I honestly do believe that for all ages, sizes, gender, everything, if every person in our world had a bike for commuting, for sports, for exercise, for going to school, I do think it would solve a lot of our problems, our transportation problems, our mental health problems. You know, I, there are so many things that, that a bike can solve. And so if we leave this podcast, my, my one goal is to get every person out there to get a bicycle and go ride it around the block. Um, because it really is a healing, a healing tool. I need to get a bike. <laughs> that's a good, that's good advice. I know I, I, my well, bike. And anyone can do it. 
two years old to, you know, to 85 years old. And we think about, you think about that moment when you took the training wheels off and we all have that, that moment of you took the wheels off and you were like, Oh my gosh, I'm going, I'm going that like exciting feeling of freedom as a kid that we, when we learn to ride a bicycle, why we lose that, you know, it's really sad. It's really a shame. And so, and I found it again, I didn't get back on the bike until I didn't start bike racing until age 38. So I had lost it for a while. You know, you go to college, you get a car and it really has become this, you know, childlike exploration tool for me to find my dad, to see the world, to explore Idaho. And so my hope is that everybody goes to REI and buys a bicycle. (laughs) I love that. Any any other parting words of wisdom? You know, we asked on the last show, you know, if you could fly an eco-friendly plane, what would it say? But now, what's what's your message on your bike trailing off the seat? Yeah, I mean, I I do have this this mantra, these equations that I live by that I've really, you know, developed over the last year or two thanks to riding the Ho Chi Minh Trail and everything I've done, I can look back to my whole career, everything I've done has fallen in this path, but I just didn't know it. But now what mm. this is, these little, you know, these little equations, these are my trail map for, you know, I don't know where I'm going next year. I still don't know where I'm going to be when I, I grow up, but this helps me make my decisions of, of how I'm going to get there. And that is risk equals reward. Passion equals payoff. Give equals get and less equals more. And there's long stories behind all of those. Um, but those are really, that's the banner behind my bicycle and, and the, the words that I live by. I love that. Rebecca, thank you so much. It's been such a joy. <laughs> Thanks, Shelby. It was really fun to talk to you. And uh, we need to get you a bicycle. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming back for round two of the show. I've actually become friends with Rebecca, and she's an incredible human. We'll have links on where to find more of Rebecca in the show notes, so go to wildideasworthliving.com to check it out. Thank you again to REI and to Altessa for supporting this show, and thank you to Rebecca's sponsors like Sea to Summit for supporting rad women. To you listening, thank you so much. This show is a labor of love and your words, encouragement, and feedback keep me going week after week. Thank you again for all your feedback from last week's show with Cheryl Strade and for your reviews on Apple Podcasts. We got one from Kersinka that really stood up. It says, you know how you have that friend you run with, the one you ski with, bike with, party with, do business with, and then there's that one unicorn of a friend that you do everything with. Yeah, this podcast is the podcast equivalent. I listen to this while working, traveling, biking, running, and everything in between can't get enough. Keep the episodes coming. So whoever you are, thank you so much. Please email me. That just means a ton. I'm giving you a giant hug. Here's my ask to you listening so I can keep doing this show, bringing you great guests and producing a quality show. Tell a friend or tell five. That's what helps the show going and I'd love your help. Thank you in advance and wherever you're listening, don't forget some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. Stay tuned. Next week, we have Aspen Mattis and the author Michael Finkel coming up. Enjoy. Enjoy.